welcome to the latest episode of the Proximo podcast. This is your host, Maisie Clark, reporting to you from London. On today's podcast, I'm very pleased to be joined by Joe Robinson, ESG manager at Equitix, a leading global investor, developer, and long-term fund manager of core infrastructure assets, who will be discussing how ESG is shaping the sector. Joe has developed his career in the infrastructure sector, having previously worked at the Global Infrastructure Investor Association, where he developed policy and regulatory proposals, advised government, and conducted industry research across issues such as funding net zero and expanding digital infrastructure. Prior to this, he worked at the European Investment Bank, where he supported transactions in the public sector and across utilities in the UK, Netherlands and Ireland. He graduated with the first class BSc from the University of Bristol and holds an MA Law with distinction. During his university education, he also spent time studying abroad at KU Leuven, Belgium and East China Normal University, Shanghai. Joe, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks, Maisie. I'm really pleased to be here and, and thank you for inviting me. No worries. It'll be really great to get your perspective on this topic. One of the overarching themes to emerge from our recent Proximo Europe conference in Lisbon was that the wider energy market is increasingly becoming driven by consumer behaviour. Consumers seem to be more conscious than ever about their own carbon footprints and how the energy and infrastructure they interact with influences this. Coupled with the rise in energy prices, which is forcing people to rethink where their energy comes from, consumers are kind of becoming prosumers, taking proactive steps to know more about their utilities, their surrounding infrastructure and the energy that they use. So I think firstly, it'd be good to outline who we mean when we use the term consumer in this context. Yeah, sure. So I think it's a really interesting question, particularly from the infrastructure fund manager perspective, because, you know, in our business and and the management of these funds, we come into contact with many different stakeholders who are interacting with the infrastructure, who require the infrastructure in order to operate their services. Um, And I think it's important for us to sort of distinguish between those different groups of of people and organisation. So I think firstly, there are the societal interactions with the infrastructure assets. And particularly when you look at an asset like student accommodation, naturally it's the students that that live within that particular infrastructure asset. But equally, I think there are uh, increasing trends at looking at around uh, EV vehicle sort of drivers and and the use of of charging points for both commercial and sort of leisure. Um, I think there's also homeowners that are, are looking to manage their own energy consumption. And particularly now with sort of incredibly high levels for energy prices uh, to households. Um, I think there's another group which is probably more uh, focused on our client base and looking at the institutional investor market and the way in which these clients have their own beneficiaries. Those beneficiaries being people who are pensioners, who are contributing to pension pots. And there is an expectation, I think, increasingly across the market that allocators who are looking to deploy capital into opportunities such as infrastructure funds are uh, looking more deeply at the ways in which uh, climate change and ESG more broadly are being considered in the management of these these assets. And then I thirdly, I think, you know, there's key stakeholders that are involved in, for example, our greenfield projects, the organizations that are sending invitations out to tender for the development of new infrastructure projects and the way in which there are higher expectations around sustainability in the ways in which uh, fund managers and developers are looking to deliver projects that meet not just the sort of day-to-day operational requirements, but but do so in a way that's much more conscious of environmental, social impacts, uh, and and to try and maximize the positive outcomes uh, as far as possible. Yeah, and when it comes to ESG, 
The focus in the market has previously been highly concentrated, primarily on the E, with the S and G taking a bit of a back seat. Have we started seeing the emergence of the social element and how is this interacting with the environment factor and also with governance? Yeah, look, I think it's a really interesting question. And I think you're quite right to say that there has been a deep focus on environmental as an issue that has really dominated the debate around ESG and how we've sort of come to see the rollout of regulatory frameworks in Europe and increasingly and in, in looking ahead in, in the UK and potentially also in the US that are really prioritizing action on the environment and, and climate change additionally. And I think that really is a reflection of the regions and the states, their policy objectives, government aims and ways in which, you know, environment is really such a driving factor for many governments uh, around the world that sort of then trickles down into regulation of how the economy functions and sort of supports those, those objectives over the long term. And I think there's an additional point around how for environmental factors in particular, we've got a really long established history of the development um, around environmental metrics. So thinking of things such as greenhouse gas emissions reporting. You know, we have a greenhouse gas emissions protocol for accounting emissions on a scope one, scope two, and scope three basis. That's been really well tried and tested uh, for many years across many different industries and sectors. And I think naturally has then become much better understood in terms of reporting, disclosure, and using metrics in order to influence how we, you know, improve environmental outcomes over the long term. On the social sides, I think there is growing awareness of actually just how important the social outcomes associated with investment are. And I think there is a growing sort of uh, expectation and understanding of the role that fund managers can play in influencing things like supply chain standards, um, in maximizing opportunities to build skills for the people that work or are contracted to work on assets, whether that's in infrastructure or other sort of sectors. Um, and I think there's also, of course, the ongoing expectation around, you know, compliance with employment standards, health and safety issues that have actually been um, really important and, and written into law and regulation for many years, but are increasingly seen as a wider set of very important considerations, almost elevated in some sense, that help to bring more weight to the social aspects of ESG and, and are sort of driving the direction of travel in terms of trying to quantify what social means in a similar way that we're seeing with, with environmental issues. And then thirdly, I think governance is, is really interesting in the way that we're seeing that evolve from traditional sort of concepts around corporate governance, which I think, to be honest, of, of all three components have been around for the longest time. Corporate governance being written into laws and regulations that surround the behavior of companies and, and company directors for many decades. And I think what we're seeing now is how ESG starts to influence the interpretation and, and application of corporate governance in practice. So um, the Task Force on Climate Related Financial Disclosure Framework, TCFD, for example, which is already becoming a mandatory requirement in the UK for large listed companies, but also increasingly sort of asset managers, fund managers uh, between now and sort of 2025. Um, is bringing consideration of climate change into governance of uh, companies and into the governance of, of investments. And so I think that along with things like the EU taxonomy and the incorporation of governance elements into what we class as sustainable investment activities is really showing that there is an evolution taking place 
which brings ESG into wider corporate governance and, and good practice. And it's not just something that's sort of limited to environmental or social. And I think my sort of overall thoughts on this are that ESG are not sort of three standalone concepts. I think where we're heading is the fact that environmental outcomes as something that's dominated the debate for so long are no longer something that regulators or indeed market actors are willing to pursue by any means necessary. Actually, when it comes to things like the transition to net zero, when it comes to decarbonizing assets or improving environmental performance, it's about doing so in a way that avoids unintended harms that perhaps arise through biodiversity impacts or impacts on the local economy and employment, and actually looking more deeply at the method of delivery and the ways in which wider impacts can be considered in order to achieve those longer term objectives that governments and, and sort of uh, states are setting out to achieve over uh, the next sort of 25 years or so. Yeah, um, and it's becoming more and more obvious that the financial performance of a range of infrastructure like assets will depend on consumer choices, but what kinds of assets are already being affected by this and which will be most affected going forwards? Yeah, so I think that, you know, from an equities perspective, we've got an interesting um, uh, overview of the market here because we're an incredibly sort of diversifying fund manager with a whole range of different infrastructure sectors um, within the portfolio. And I think from that, we kind of get uh, a good view about a whole sort of plethora of, of trends that are affecting um, these sectors and the assets that sort of deliver services from social infrastructure to transportation to sort of energy. And, you know, I think I'd start off with the relationship between, for example, street lighting assets and electric vehicle charging infrastructure. So, you know, internally, I think what we've seen is that there's been a market shift from investor perception of, of an asset risk profile related to electric vehicle charging that perhaps five or 10 years ago, um, a sort of street lighting asset with some form of EV charging capability bolted on um, may not have been taken seriously at all by the market. Um, but now if you've got a streetlight asset that's sort of positioned in a densely populated urban area where there's sort of clear demand for EV charging and you don't have that EV charging capability bolted on, um, we're actually kind of seeing, well, that response from five to 10 years ago is almost now being put on, on those sorts of assets that are sort of laggards in, in this space. Um, I think secondly, you know, around smart meters. So we're seeing a huge sort of increase in, in the level of smart meter rollout across uh, the UK, something like 28.8 million smart meters across houses and uh, small sort of commercial businesses that have been installed, um, you know, despite COVID setbacks uh, at a rate that's really picking up um, over sort of recent years. And I think predominantly this is driven by the fact that with smart meters, there is greater control over things like energy usage um, and payments associated with, with energy consumption. And, you know, particularly today, it's no surprise that with rising energy prices, smart meters are playing an important role day to day in, in helping to manage energy consumption and the impact that has on, on sort of day to day costs. I think there's also an additional element, which is, you know, around this shifting consumer uh, behavior and interest towards what environmental impact looks like on an individual level. And actually smart meters offer quite an easy way in which to sort of manage and, and monitor an individual's or a household's or a small business's environmental impact 
without necessarily having to understand, you know, what scope two emissions are, for example, that, that arise from energy consumption. You can instead look at, you know, where you are and when you're using energy and, and reducing that where possible and sort of taking a much more proactive approach, as you said at the start, towards the way in which we interact with, with the infrastructure that we need to sort of carry on with our daily lives. Um, and I think on a wider scale, what's really interesting with smart meters is that when you have better aggregation of data across the network, it actually helps in terms of managing and balancing supply and demand. So I think as a whole, you know, this individual sort of push towards uh, using and installing smart meters is also helping us sort of at a, at a macro level with these challenges. And then thirdly, I think student accommodation is a really interesting area and one in which particularly with uh, a sort of investment that, that we're making with Exeter University student accommodation, um, there is a shift in terms of, of what um, uh, requirements are being set out in sort of uh, tenders and, and planning applications, um, particularly in the case of Exeter University and the use of passive house design, which as a sort of uh, design approach really looks to achieve high levels of, of insulation, very high performance windows, uh, airtight building fabric, mechanical um, ventilation, and also the use of, of heat recovery, which ultimately leads to sort of lower operating costs, um, reduced energy consumption, and then in turn, of course, a redu reduction in, in scope one and, and scope two emissions, which is positive from a sort of greenhouse gas emissions perspective. And I think even if we're not looking at the sort of the extent of passive house as a design standard across the wider market, and you know, still I think it's it's still a fairly new and, and nascent area in social infrastructure. Um, there is certainly trends across the wider sector um, towards shifting away from our reliance on gas, you know, electrifying buildings in order to reduce those scope one emissions that arise from uh, the combustion of gas boilers, for example. Um, the use of, of air source heat pumps, um, indeed that's being driven a lot by sort of policy and regulation in areas like London in an attempt to sort of increase air quality. Um, and also adding, you know, solar uh, panels to rooftops as far as possible, again, just to improve the overall environmental credentials of a building and, and ultimately positively impact the day-to-day -day operations, both from an environmental and, and also to, a, to uh, a degree in a uh, financial perspective. Um, the sort of the last interesting trend within social infrastructure and, and sort of building such as student accommodation is also the use of, of more advanced uh, management. Uh, systems using sort of apps and sensors to, to better understand, you know, the use of energy in particular rooms to automatically control air temperature and to make sort of buildings a much more uh, smart piece of infrastructure that better manages uh, its overall impact and, and provides the users and the occupants and the facilities management with better data and insight on their overall impact and, and essentially equips them to, to improve that over time. So I think generally, you know, my kind of thoughts around uh, how assets are being affected are that, you know, we're definitely seeing a, a, a shift towards understanding life cycle, carbon impacts, not just those during the, the operational phase, but actually embodied throughout the manufacturing and development of projects. I think we're seeing more efficient and smarter ways of constructing uh, buildings, looking at reduction in transport to and from sites. And implementing measures such as modern methods of construction, something that is definitely uh, ever greater in, in the social infrastructure sector. So certainly a huge range of, of trends that are affecting, you know, the portfolio 
and I think it's really exciting to see that greater connection with you know how consumers are behaving, how our stakeholders are expecting infrastructure to operate, and you know how we can then respond to that and actually deliver the solutions that that those groups are, are looking for. Yeah, thanks for that, Joe. I mean, having touched on Equitix's assets, a couple of examples, I guess it would be good to discuss your ESG and responsible investment policy, which is spearheaded by the principle that ESG and long-term financial performance are not mutually exclusive, a concept that's becoming more widely realized across the market. But how do we go about integrating meaningful ESG considerations with tangible outcomes into the investment process? Yeah, so I think, you know, first and foremost, the approach to understanding this question is really about how ESG properly, I believe, starts with a real deep focus on operations. So it's not about sort of setting out with a, a marketing objective in the first instance in communicating you know, about ESG. I think actually it's about taking a step back and looking at the ways in which the right tools, systems, processes, uh, software are incorporated into the way in which a, a fund manager looks at ESG, helps to quantify the impacts, uh, collects better quality data, uses that data intelligently to inform the overall management of a, of a portfolio, and then starts to build on top of that, you know, what the outcomes look like as a result of the operational changes and improvements that have been implemented. And I think that it's about using a broader range of meaningful considerations that are material to an investment in order to better inform our understanding of where the material risks and opportunities lie with a particular asset. So I see it as very much an extension of the toolkit that our investments team and our asset management team can use in exercising their day-to-day -day role, whilst also setting out a clearer standard around what best practice looks like. How can we sort of benchmark assets? How can we look to make more informed decisions on what good and, and what sort of bad looks like? And how can we try to bridge that gap so that assets you know, across various sectors are performing as, as sort of best in class as possible? So as I say, I think you know, really we're looking for better quality data from the assets that we hold. We've got to work through more uh, sort of sophisticated survey techniques to gather this data, particularly in a private markets context where we can't rely on sort of third party data providers in order to collect this information. You know, it's really on the fund manager to work with the underlying portfolio entities in order to complete that sort of challenge. I think we've got to then best equip our teams with the right insights to help them shape decision making whether that's through board representation and working at sort of the special purpose vehicle uh, level in order to steer an asset in a way that sort of incorporates ESG considerations, um, or whether that's supporting colleagues in understanding what the underlying drivers are behind these ESG metrics. You know, I think there's a huge educational piece here that actually deeps, uh, deep dives into what goes into a scope one and a scope two and a scope three emission. How can we understand where uh, sort of biodiversity impacts arise from and what can be done to increase the positive impacts whilst reducing the negative ones? And I think overall, this is about continuing to build knowledge and understanding whilst at the same time actually delivering uh, throughout the sort of the coming years as the market really matures in its understanding and application of ESG. And fundamentally, you know, I think that we've got to move away from this notion that ESG is all about sort of good news stories, right? There is, a, there is an element to that, 
when you've done the operational element, you've, you've got the right tools, you've applied them in the right way, and then you've been able to measure improvements over time. I think that's where the sort of the good news aspect to ESG comes. But fundamentally, that is sort of an outcome. It's not the input and sort of direction in and of itself. I think people will gradually start to realize, you know, across the market that what we're really talking about here is lifting the hood, sort of looking more deeply at a particular asset, at a particular opportunity to invest, and really getting a better holistic understanding, you know, of how that asset operates, what it looks like over the long term, what its impacts are, where the risks and opportunities lie. And ultimately, we can then better support our clients, our infrastructure users, governments on these longer term sustainability objectives in a way that's much more informed and, and driven by evidence. And I'm really pleased to see, you know, what we're doing at Equitix to, to sort of support that. Yeah, definitely. And on the topic of making kind of tangible outcomes from ESG considerations when investing, I think it'd be interesting to touch on the Industry Coalition Net Zero Asset Managers Initiative. Um, a total of 273 asset managers who together oversee investments worth 61.3 trillion have now signed up to the Net Zero Asset Managers Initiative. Um, the members have agreed to set interim targets for emission reductions by the end of this decade. These targets and their lack of consistency has drawn criticism from ESG strategists who have labeled them as purely aspirational. What are your thoughts on the coalition and the target set? Yeah, interesting. So look, I think absolutely action on the transition to net zero is crucial. You know, net zero is something that is uh, increasingly a legislated target across many different jurisdictions. And it's not something that, you know, we can put aside and, and sort of ignore for many years. The transition to net zero is uh, quite a transformational shift in the economy that's going to require deep cuts in underlying emissions associated with all economic activities, not just in infrastructure, but across a wide range of sectors. And I think with that comes a realization that the transition itself will take many decades to really uh, sort of implement and, and realize to, it, to its full. It's not something that we can sort of do overnight without looking at the sort of the costs and the implications and, and understanding sort of who plays what role in making this shift and, and achieving the outcome. And I think that groups such as the Net Zero Asset Managers Initiative have set out with absolutely the right intentions to, tr to address that issue, right? And to look at the ways in which the private sector and in particular asset managers can play a role alongside other important stakeholders in this shift. And I think what's really positive is how having targets and a sort of clear direction of travel that's monitorable over time and sort of holds actors account in their objectives and in the commitments that have been made is really important because it makes this all the more meaningful. And I think it helps to encourage progress where it's needed, particularly as this area, as you mentioned, not just historically, but sort of currently is subject to criticism for being big on statements and, and sort of limited then in action. And I think the difficulty that we face is that ultimately um, one industry such as asset management on its own won't be able to deliver the transition to net zero solely through sort of fund managers and, and sort of uh, reorientating capital and steering capital in a way that gets us to net zero. There are a whole range of other actors and, and stakeholders that are required in this. And we need to get that buy-in to support the very basics of things like data collection and improving the quality of data, 
through to then actually implementing the operational changes. And of course, before doing so, you know, calculating what the costs look like, what the implications are for the underlying business and how best to uh, improve the, the sort of the net zero credentials of an asset over the next 25 year timeframe or indeed sooner as, as some asset managers have sort of made it an earlier commitment to. I think there's also challenges, particularly in infrastructure and I'm sure also the same in many other sectors around how we've got many different types of asset, many different sectors. We have uh, PFIs, we've got large corporates with sort of management teams. There are smaller infrastructure assets that have uh, dedicated subcontractors who provide the engineering, the operations and, and maintenance services. And there are nuances you know, across all those different types of, of asset that require specific approaches and can't be addressed just with a one-size-fits-all approach. So I think ultimately, you know, we shouldn't be criticizing commitments where they've been made with, with the right intention. I think what we have to do, though, is focus ensuring those commitments do translate into action. I think that's just a given and, and not something that anyone would sort of dispute. Because personally, I think you know, the market right now, following COP26 and sort of that rush to make commitments to really drive progress, as well as the general sense of urgency that people feel around the issue of climate change and just how impactful it's already uh, starting to become. You know, it's it's no uh, surprise to many when you're watching the news or, or reading the latest IPCC reports around how climate change is already impacting some of the most vulnerable regions in the world, but also more close to home in, in places such as North America and, and in Europe. Um, that this is an issue which is already impacting our lives and, and the way in which we expect to live day to day. So I think that um, with that has come this sort of huge shift towards demonstrating commitment and sort of setting out for, for progress to be made. And I think what's really important now is, is making sure that groups such as Net Zero Asset Managers Initiative really live up to those expectations, really continue to drive and evolve progress and to address the issues that, that we're seeing and to sort of take that long-term view that actually this isn't something we can solve within the sort of next 12 months. It's gonna take a huge systemic change in order to address. And so as a group and, and other industry groups the same, we've got to work through what those challenges are and help one another in order to find the solutions. And then I think we'll start to see progress that we need. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, Joe. I'm afraid that's what we have time for. But thank you so much for taking some time to join me on today's podcast. It's been a really interesting discussion and it will be fascinating to see what comes to fruition in the not so distant future when it comes to consumer led and ESG investing. My pleasure and really nice to speak to you this afternoon. Thanks, Maisie. Thanks again to Joe, and thanks all for listening. I'd just like to take a moment to remind listeners of our upcoming webinar, Making CCS the Linchpin of the Transition, which is taking place live tomorrow, Thursday the 30th of June at 4pm UK time and 11am New York time. The member-exclusive webinar, chaired by our very own Tom Nelthorpe, features guest Jonathan Yates, Director of Deal Advisory at RPS, and John Marchiano, partner at Allen & Overy. Proximo members can access the webinar through a link on our website, www.proximoinfra.com. Thanks all. Have a lovely week. Thank you.